I mentioned a couple weeks ago that I thought it would be really cool to have a nice light series as we approach Christmas. I had done some really challenging series over the last few months, so I thought there'd be some opportunity to do a fun series in November, and so hopefully this will be fun. It's going to be challenging as well, but I thought it would be fun. Amazing Stories of the Bible. This is our series that we've been working through. Our four-week series then is on these, some of these awesome truths of the Bible. All right, awesome truths of the Bible. So this is what we've been working on, this amazing stories of the Bible. And let's just recap real quickly, look at our strategy. Our strategy over the last couple of weeks was this is last week, the first week actually, not last week, but the first week we talked about the parting of the Red Sea. And we talked about the fact that this is a story that we've all heard. It doesn't matter what our culture is or where we were raised in the world. Pretty much everyone has heard of Moses parting the Red Sea. It's, it's a, an idea that we see in Hollywood films. It's an idea that is entrenched in our culture. But one of the things that we talked about is that a lot of times with the amazing stories of the Bible, we sort of miss some of the bigger truths or, or sort of the bigger ideas of it. And one of the things that we talked about the first week is that with God, anything is possible. You know, the Israelites were really upset because God had rescued them from Pharaoh, taken them out of Egypt. You know, yo, yo, let my people go kind of thing, right? They had come out of Egypt. And then they were there by the Red Sea, and they were immediately like, oh, woe is me, because God has abandoned us, and even though he brought us out of Egypt, he's just going to let us die here in the, de- in the desert. And of course, that wasn't true, but they went from having a lot of faith in God to having no faith in God almost overnight. And the same is true of us. I asked the first week, do you know someone, and even in our lives, people who are miraculously healed, and the next week they're in church, and they're like, Praise God. And then like a month later, you don't ever see him again because it just lasted for a short, short season. For those of us who are really going to follow God and really know him and really have a relationship with Jesus, it cannot be just a season, cannot be a week, it cannot be a month. It has to be a lifelong process of knowing God and having a relationship with him that really matters. By the way, the Bible talks a lot about people who come, have faith for a season, and then are never seen from again. It doesn't have very good things to say about them because they really don't have relationship with God. They just sort of have an exposure to faith. They know faith is powerful, but then they give up on faith. They don't really make it. Let's leave it like that. All right, first we talked about parting the Red Sea. We also talked about that the greatest miracle if we read the story really carefully, may not be actually the parting of the Red Sea, may not be that the water parted and the Israelites were able to walk through, but it was because that they had faith in God. It was faith in God that allowed the Red Sea to be parted. It was their faith in God, at least Moses' faith in God at that point, several of their faith in God that allowed God to do something in their lives. Does God require faith to do something? No does not require faith to do something. Just so we're clear, because I don't want anybody to miss the point, because sometimes if you flip in the channels and you see those, some of the crazy people on TV, you'll give you the impression that God has to work if you have faith. No, God does what God wants to do, but when we have faith in him, it opens the door for him to do more in our lives. Does that make sense? In other words, there's nothing that we do that can make God do anything. Like my son, he's four. Sometimes he gets all, you know, sort of sideways, shall we put it that way with me? wants to, you know, gets a little rebellious, but he's four. There's nothing he can make me do. Maybe when he's 18, different story. But right now, nothing he can make me do. And so there's nothing that we as the children of God can make God do. But when we have faith, it opens the door for God to do more in our lives. God wants to do things when we have faith. And the more faith we have, the more we see him act. But 
It's not a promise. And this is a great story to illustrate that here this morning. All right, so last week we talked about talking donkeys, which is always a good subject to talk about. It's interesting because the Bible does contain a lot of miracles, and the miracles in the Bible, if you, if you go to an atheistic website or a skeptical website, people will say things like, wow, you know, the Bible doesn't make any sense. But the thing is, is that the reason why God used some of these miracles was to get people's attention. A talking animal got people's attention. The other thing is we miss sometimes is that in our world today, we don't, we don't live in an agrarian society anymore. We live in an urban society. You know what I mean? We live in where there's skyscrapers, and if a donkey walked past the church, half of us wouldn't know if it was a mule, donkey, or a horse. Let's be honest. I'm not, sometimes I get confused when I'm at the farm or I'm taking Wyatt to Penzu. I don't always know what it is either. But in the ancient world, people knew exactly what the kind of animals were. And one of the things in the ancient world that was associated with the, how do I put it like this, the demonic spirits. But when we talk about the word demonic, we need to realize that demonic in Bible context does not always mean bad, especially in the ancient world, but with other supernatural spirits. It's probably a better word in English. With supernatural spirits, speaking from animals was considered a common thing. It was considered something that everybody understood could happen. Not that it happened regularly, but it could happen. And so when the donkey of Balaam spoke, Balaam as a sorcerer and as someone who was against God recognized it for what it was. In other words, God was sort of speaking Balaam's language. I didn't really bring that out fully last week, but God was speaking Balaam's language. How do you get an attention of a sorcerer? You don't send him a letter. You do something that sorcerers do or think can happen in our world. And that's why God spoke through a donkey. Now, the interesting thing about Balaam's donkey is, as I mentioned last week too, is that God will use lots of different avenues to speak to us. By being spoken to with a donkey, the donkey was considered in the ancient world like a donkey is today. What do we make, what do we, how do we feel about donkeys? Are they the king of the jungle? Are donkeys the king of the jungle? No, they're like the lowest. They're not like amoeba or a rat or something, but they're pretty low. They're, they're considered kind of dumb. And so the whole point of why God used a donkey to speak to Balaam is because he was saying, Balaam, you're kind of dumb. You need to listen to me now. And by the way, I'm using a language that you can speak, which you understand, which is the sorcery of the ancient world. So last week we talked about don- talking donkeys and how God can speak his language to people. Now, here's what we're going to do this week. Today we're going to talk about being burned alive. Let me just say as a side note, I may not mention this in the next service, but you know how you meet some people who they call themselves Christians and you guess that you hope that they are, but they're always waiting for, they're, they're always thinking God's going to do a miracle in their life. And by a miracle, I don't mean like something special for them. I mean, they're going to part the Red Sea for them or they're going to do something out of the Bible for them. You know how they always mention things like Jonah or Moses? but they never mention this one. <laughs> they never want to go ahead and get in a furnace. Why? Because God only works one way with, with people. I mean, what he did for the people we're going to talk about today, he's not going to do for any of us because that was something special to them. The thing is that what God's going to do for you is also going to be special to you. Maybe some of you, God's going to do something awesome with your mortgage or God's going to do something awesome with your missions and your missions giving. Or maybe God's going to do something awesome with you ministering to people or whatever ministry you have or sharing your faith. Whatever it is, God's going to do something awesome with you, but it may not be the same awesome thing he does with other people. That's one thing that's hard to understand but important for us to keep in mind. So today we're going to talk about being burned alive, which sounds like fun and it's a good story. Okay, so we're going to see what the Bible says. We're going to be in Daniel chapter three. Now, like I said, with the amazing stories, usually I look at, you know, a couple verses on Sunday morning and we break those down. 
But the amazing stories, it's really important that we actually read the story in context. So Daniel chapter 3, if you want to turn in your Bibles or on your iPhone or smartphone or whatever the case may be, you'll want to hold your finger there because what's going to happen is we're going to look at it and it's really long. So I apologize, but there's really no way to get through some of these good stories without being able to do it. King Nebuchadnezzar, this is starting in verse 1, and I, I uh, excerpted a few things, but King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So here's what happened. Let me just give you some of the background here. The Israelites, if you remember, Moses led the Israelites away from Pharaoh and out of Egypt and into the promised land. They stayed in the promised land for several hundred years, five, six, seven hundred years, at which time they ran into some problems. They had judges, and then eventually they cried out to God, and they got kings. And immediately upon having kings like David and Solomon, you've probably heard of some of those, these kings, they didn't do a very good job. So a lot of times people ask questions like, well, why did some of the kings in the Bible have like 300 wives? That doesn't seem very godly. Well, yeah, that's if you read on, you'll find out that the kingdoms that they were entrusted with lasted a short time and were totally destroyed because they didn't listen to God at all. They pretended to be followers of God, but they did not actually do that. And so what happens is, is that the first kingdom fell apart and was destroyed in all of its areas. And then eventually the second kingdom was also destroyed and it was destroyed by the Babylonians. They came in and they crushed the Israelites and they did, they, they did what we call today the Babylonian captivity. You don't need to remember that, but what you need to know is, is that the Babylonians, like a lot of people in the ancient world, they didn't always just crush them and annihilate them. I mean, that was a possibility. You know, you had genocide where they just totally wiped them out. But one of the things that was common to do is to actually take them back and use them as slaves. That was kind of common because everybody needs some slaves. You could do that. You could also try to intermarry them. So you would have a stronger people. Like, for example, let's say you captured these people, the Israelites. Well, you don't really want Israelites' enemies in your kingdom, so, but you don't really want to kill them because they could be part of your army. So what you would do is you'd marry them off to people that were in your tribe, and then the intermingling would cause the children to be accepted into that society, and they would think of themselves more as Babylonians than, say, Israelites. What happened was, is Nebuchadnezzar was the guy who came in and crushed them, and he transported them back. And in the process of having them there, he found out that what? He found out that the Israelites have a unique God, which is the God that we worship. Now remember, keep this in context, this is at least 2,800 years ago. So this is, this is way before Jesus, but the Israelites had a God that they worshiped. They were looking for the Messiah, but they worshiped a God and they, there was always talk about this God and the power of this God because of the parting of the Red Sea and all these legends that went along with it. So da King Nebuchadnezzar had met Daniel. This is from the book of Daniel. And he had done some things with Daniel. But now we're going to look at this story of Daniel's friends, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And those are three guys that we're going to talk about today. So King Nebuchadnezzar, because of, of his victories and all the things like that, he made a gold statue 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So here's what he did. Has everybody seen a totem pole? Everybody know what a totem pole is? So the archaeologists are debated on this uh, about exactly what it is, but the consensus is probably, although they think they found the base of it, there's this huge base that they found on a plain in what was now what is now ancient Babylon. So it was either a base, because they found a base of something, or it was, and then a totem pole, or it's just a totem pole. And so what he did was he made a huge totem pole, 
that out of with gold surrounding it, you know, built out of wood and iron and everything, but then a gold covering on it. And he did what with it? He put it on the plain. Why did he put it on the plain? So that when people approached the city, what did the totem pole do? Even with the, I think I'm not an expert on Native, Indian, Native Americans, but what did they do? It like was fearsome, right? It was fearful. So he made an image of his God, probably Marduk, and made this huge totem pole and put it on the plains outside of his city so that when people came towards the city, they saw this fearsome God and they were like, whoa, I need to be careful because here's this huge statue of this huge God. And it scared people in the ancient world because they, they didn't know what computers and airplanes and stuff like that was. So he, he made, a, made a gold statue, 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide, and set it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So because he built it, then he sent messages out to everyone and it basically gathered all of his government officials to the site. Then a herald shouted out, people of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. Okay, again, I mentioned that they intermingle and they intermarry to try to build the society up. So they had lots of different people, but all who worked in his government, who were his governors, his province leaders, that sort of thing, they gathered around. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, in other words, his band, bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Why a furnace? Because they built the furnace there uh, to make the gold, to melt the gold, smelting, I think is the right word, to smelt the gold for the statue. So there's a huge furnace there by the side, which they had built to make the statue. So it basically says when the band starts playing, everyone, doesn't matter what your nationality is, doesn't matter who your God is, you're going to bow down and you're going to show obedience to me as the king of all of Babylon by worshiping this idol. So at the sound of the musical instruments, all the people, whatever their race or nation or language, bowed to the ground and worshipped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But some of the astrologers went to the king and informed on the Jews. So here's what happened. What happened is, is that some of the Babylonians who were native Babylonians didn't like the fact that some of the Jewish people, some of the Israelites, were ascending in the court system. Daniel and these three guys had risen because they had done really well in the court system. They were jealous. They were jealous probably for religious reasons, probably for uh, racial reasons as well. They didn't like them. They didn't like them. They didn't want to be there. So they're always looking for reasons to get them in trouble. So some of the astrologers went to the king and informed on the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar basically this. There are some Jews, specifically Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon. They pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you have set up. So when, when the band was playing, it was a lot of people there. Nebuchadnezzar could not see three people not bowing down, but they're friends. So then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage, and the Bible has an interesting thing there where it says he got so mad he just lost control of himself and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. Now, when they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I've set up? It's really interesting, the story, because normally, what do we think of kings? Off with his head, immediately. A lot of kings would have just been like, kill him. But because he had been involved in their appointment to be overseers of the province of Babylon, in fact, the very area where they built the, the idol, um, he was... He was really mad, but he was also a little bit flabbergasted that they would not then bow down to him because they had been so loyal and had demonstrated themselves so well before. So he says, I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I made when you hear the sounds of the band playing. 
But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? See, he knew that they worshiped a different God. He'd already had some dealings with Daniel. He understood that they believed strongly in their God, but he didn't think that their God could really do anything in this situation. You have to remember that most kings in the ancient world consider themselves God. That extended all the way into Rome and, you know, like... Well, I certainly by the 5th or 6th century of our era where kings considered themselves to be gods. And so their view of God was more like human God. Like God can do some things, but he can't like you can't walk into a furnace and God's going to rescue you. That, that's not going to happen. That's not possible. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. <laughs> by the way, if you ever stand for a king, this may not be the way you want to speak, but be that as it may. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But this is, this is a great line, verse 18. But even if God doesn't rescue us, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. That's a huge verse right there. Because, well, we're going to talk about it in a minute. Let me just give you the idea. They weren't trying to be, and you look in the original language, they're not trying to be mean they're just trying to be firm. They're just trying to be, with all due respect, your majesty, I am not going to worship your God. That's what they said. Nebuchadnezzar was so furious with them that his face became distorted with rage. He, he had anger control issues, you know, needed anger management class. He commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. Then he ordered seven means that was like, he, he said, I want this heated as hot as you can make it. That's that's the best translation. Then he orders some of the strongest men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So they tied them up and threw them into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants, turbans, robes, and other garments, and because, in other words, in their formal attire. And because the king, in his anger, had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames actually killed some of the soldiers as they threw the men in. There were some of the soldiers actually caught fire themselves as they were trying to put the men in. I mean, they didn't, have, they didn't have fire control or fire department back then. It was just burned up, and that's just the way it was. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tired, fell into the roaring flames. But suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie up these three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. And there was the people around his throne there as he's sitting down. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound walking around the fire unharmed. And the fourth looks like a god, or literally looks like a son of God, is what it says in the original language. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted to them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. Then the high officers, officials, governors, and advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their heads was singed, and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell like smoke. Then Nebuchadnezzar, I love the detail that sometimes the Bible puts in it. Then Nebuchadnezzar says, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I make this decree. If any people, whatever their race or nation or language, speak a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. So it's going to get revenge. There is no other God who can rescue like this. So then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to even higher positions in the province of Babylon. 
All right, so let's talk about this this morning. Great story from the Bible, amazing story from the Bible. The chance at being burned alive doesn't sound like fun. I'm sure they didn't think it was fun, but we're going to deal with it here this morning. All right, two ideas very simply. First idea this morning is that God alone is worthy of worship. We see here one of the primary principles of our lives, one of the primary principles of the Bible, which is only God is worthy of worship. This is the thing that happened, right? I mean, Nebuchadnezzar... He didn't think there was anything wrong with the Israelites bowing down to his God. In fact, this is one of the big themes of of the Bible, of the Old Testament, especially because a lot of the kings from Pharaoh to Nebuchadnezzar to the Roman and, and Greek emperors who eventually controlled Palestine, they didn't see where it would be any problem for people to bow down to their God as well as their own God. Because they lived in a highly polytheistic society, and sort of different even than polytheism today, it was just accepted that that's what you did. When you were with your people, you worshipped your God, but when you were with other people, you worshipped other gods. You know, it's kind of like, have you, ever, have you ever seen on TV where there's, they have these interfaith services, especially when there's a tragedy? And, and I'm, not, I'm not, I don't want to say this, I'm not opposed to it on the fact that we live in a pluralistic society, but... If you've ever been to an interfaith service, it's the Christian guy or gal gets up and and does their thing, and then the the Hindu person gets up and does their thing, the Buddhist person gets up and does their thing, and in the interest of respect and love, we just pray with each one of them. But as Christians, we have a problem with that, and of course, sometimes society sees us as being too rigid or too exclusive because we won't bow to Buddha. But there's a reason why we don't bow to Buddha, which is what? There's a reason why we don't bow to Krishna, which is what? Because that's not our God. That's, that's a different God. Even though there's always been and always will be people who say, oh, it's basically the same thing, it's really not basically the same thing. In fact, throughout the Bible, God is always identified very specifically. Not, not so much with, well, let me just say, he's always identified specifically with his people. So we say the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the God who was the burning bush before Moses, the God who says, you can, if you want my name, just call me I am he. That's, I don't have a name. I am the one who created. That, that, that's my name if you really need a name. So God alone is worthy of worship. In our society, it's very tempting today to, be, to worship other things. Not only are we expected to worship other gods at times, we're also encouraged to worship things that is apart from God. Again, interfaith is one of those examples, but another example is just the fact that we, and we are constantly encouraged to put other things in front of God. Let me give some examples here. Nebuchadnezzar set up an idol, which is common in our world today. So Nebuchadnezzar built this totem pole, and he made it out of gold, so, and he made it be fearsome so that people would be afraid and would want to bow down to this idol. And the same is true in our world because we build idols all the time. Idols are something that we see all the time in our world. It's not that they're necessarily made out of gold and 90 feet tall anymore, but there are a lot of idols that we are encouraged to worship. Sometimes technology can be an idol. Sometimes our society can be an idol. Sometimes government or uh, help groups can be an idol. Sometimes our career can be an idol. I mean, there's lots of different ways that we can, we can look at idols in our world today. But idol is just something that we basically put our faith in above and we obey more than anything else. The problem, and we need to, ma- I want to make this clear, so I'm going to say this again. The problem is not the fact that God wants us, I'm going to, just let me be very clear. The problem is not the fact that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this situation, or the Israelites in other situations, were unwilling to worship God. 
The fact is, is that God demands exclusivity in worship. Let me say it again. It's not the fact that these people were unwilling to worship God. Even Nebuchadnezzar had worshipped God before. Our God had worshipped him before. That wasn't the problem. By the way, that's not what God wants. But that's not the problem. What God demands and what God asks of us is exclusivity in worship, which means that we will worship him and him alone and that we will take that seriously. Now, marriage is always a great example of this. When you say, I do, to your wife or to your husband, your wife and your husband expect exclusivity. They expect you to be faithful to them and them alone. Now, as people, we make mistakes and we fail, but God's expectation for us is that we will not fail. God's desire for us is that we will serve him and love him and be faithful to him exclusively. Now, I know that we live in a society of open marriages and victimless crimes and you know, all these sorts of things like that. And so I know that our society is closer in a way to the way the ancient world was than society has been in a long time. And the reason is, is because we, it, it's not that we're saying do what's wrong. Our society is not telling us do what's wrong. Our society is telling us just mix in some good with some bad. But mixing in good with bad is still wrong according to the Bible when it comes to the worship of God. God wants us to be faithful to him and him alone and not be faithful to anyone else. So we look back at the story of Balaam last week. What happened to Balaam? Was Balaam willing to worship God? If Balaam was alive today, would he come to church with us? Yes, he would. He would come to church with us, praise the Lord, and then immediately he would go out and go to some other church or uh, some other religion. He would go to do some sorcery. He would do something else. By the way, I know people like this, and you probably do too. There are people who just come and they worship at church, and then but they have their own religion or they have their own belief structure that's totally different. How many of you know people who are multiple religions? Because that's really popular now. Uh, Kirk saying, "Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's very common today to know people who are multi have multiple religions. They'll say, like my my first exposure to this was I had a professor in college who was both a Buddhist and a Christian, and I was like, well, wait a minute. That is, I mean, all right, I'm a student and I'm ignorant. Okay, just because I'm ignorant. Okay, but how can you be a Buddhist and a Christian? So anyway, long story short, I I, I sort of got what his point was, but we find lots of people like that." The danger for us is not that some of you are Christian slash Hindu or Christian slash Shinto or whatever religion it is. That's not the danger for us. The danger for most of us here is that we are Christian slash Xbox junkie. We're Christian slash workaholic. We're Christian slash a little wine in the weekend and at night and uh, in the morning and all the time. Uh, whatever it may be, that, that's our problem. And our challenge is, is for us not to bow down to any form of idol, whether it be made of gold, whether it be made of silver, or whether it be something in our life. So Nebuchadnezzar set up an idol common in our world. There are lots of idols in our world. Some are made of gold, some are made of silver, but some are just things that we worship. Some are things that are on TV, American Idol, right? I mean, that's a different kind of idol, and that's a joke. But, I mean, it, 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 you know, it does surprise me sometimes. Like, okay, I have to say, even though he died a year ago, I'm surprised by a number of people who worship Michael Jackson. I mean, isn't that amazing in a way? I mean, he might have been a good singer in some ways. I'll give it to him on a couple songs. But the people that really worship him, I just, you know, it's, it's, it's odd. Nebuchadnezzar, but people need an idol. People were created to worship, and so that's what happens. So the problem is whenever discussion of idols comes up, even though it's really big 
topic in the Old Testament. It's hard to deal with today because a lot of times people don't build idols of stone or gold or silver, whatever it may be, but they still have idols in their lives. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was firm in their response to the king. Now, that's what's really cool here because Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego, they were like, listen, no offense, with all due respect, with all due respect, we are not going to worship your God. They weren't mean, but they were clear. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were firm in their response to the king. I mean, they were basically like, this is not going to happen. By the way, so many times in our society, what happens with idols? Idols always push, they always encourage, they always challenge us to move beyond where we're comfortable with, what we're supposed to do. If we have an idol, be sports. It's very easy for sports to then do what? Well, you know, I, shouldn't, I don't have to go to church on Sunday because I got sports. I don't have to read my Bible day because I've got, you know, got to watch the game. I, I, I don't have time to pray because I've got to meet the guys after work, and then I've got to pick up the kids, meet the guys for basketball, pick up the kids after that. And, and you know, I'm picking on sports here. But w- what happens is, is that there's a constant, you know, sort of movement into our lives slowly and surely to erode our worship of God. So Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, what they were doing here is they were trying to be firm and say, listen, no offense, but we are not going to do it. No matter what happens, we are not going to bow down and worship you. And and so the king was really taken aback by this because the king thought, wait a minute, you know, this is really crazy. Here are these guys that I pointed. They were faithful. They had done a good job. I mean, they had proven themselves to be very, very effective. And yet they were saying, listen, I, we're just not going to do that. So he says, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power. I've mentioned this before, but uh, if you've ever been in church, you went in traditional church, and they say Jesus saves. The save word is a little weird in English today. Rescue is a very good word there. Rescue is a big part of it. So saves is just sort of the old traditional way. But that's what we're talking about. God rescues us from our brokenness. God rests just like he rescued the people in the Bible from when, not only from their brokenness. See, okay, let me do this so we're just real clear. Man, I'm confused this morning. Okay, so just so we're real clear, the rescue of God in our lives takes two, two ways, right? Two forms. It, it, first of all, it's a very spiritual rescue whereby we have salvation, which the word salvation in the original language just means to be rescued. So God rescues us from our sins, he, he, he saves us, he rescues us so that we are not held accountable for our mistakes because we've, we've been forgiven from those. But he also does what? On a physical, emotional type level, he rescues us in this world too. Um, if there's something going wrong in our lives and we cry out to God, he, he very well may rescue us. In fact, he will rescue us, just the rescue may, uh, will look different every time. We're going to talk about that in a second. So we are thrown into blazing furnace. The God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty, But even if he doesn't, we want to make clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you uh, have set up. And so they made it abundantly clear that they were willing to do that. Now, here's the question for each of us. Are we, have we drawn a line in the sand of what we will do and what we will not do in this life? I think to be a mature Christian, I think you have to. I think you have to. Okay, let me just give you an example. What happens if your boss comes to you and says, we're going, to have, we're going to have an Islamic interfaith worship service day where you have to come down and you have to go through the Islamic celebration with them? Are you going to do it? Even if it means losing your job? 
Okay, well, okay. At least we have some honesty. This raises a good question because where do you, and where do you draw the line? That becomes a question. I mean, if, they, if you just go down to the HR office where they're having the celebration and you just have to, I don't know, even eating halal meat is an issue, I suppose. But, I mean, you have to go down there and you have to say hi to everybody. Okay, that's one thing. What if you're expected to actually bow down? What if they want you to do that? Now, you may say, oh, that doesn't happen in the U.S., but actually, there was a, what was it, New Jersey, there was a school that took the kids to the mosque and, and led them through the worship services there. I don't know if they were observing or taking part, but that was New Jersey. So where do you draw the line? Now, I know someone was brave and said yes, but I think that if it comes to worshiping another god, we have sold our soul if we do it. Again, in America, we have so much freedom that we don't have this problem, but other parts of the world. For those of you who have born and been born and raised in other parts of the world, you know that there's a lot more conflict than there is in the U.S. It's not unusual to be forced to worship another god. So what do we say and what do we do? Well, it's really important that we make the right decision because when we agree to bow down and worship a false god, not only do we bring dishonor upon our god, but we have basically, sold, like I said, sold our soul. Uh, can I say, yeah, I don't, okay, this is not a PG word, I apologize. But if we want to use the biblical word, what is the right word that we have done by bowing down to an idol? We prostituted ourselves. We have prostituted ourselves. That's the right biblical word. That's what we have done. Why? Because we have sold our body and our worship to someone who doesn't deserve it, someone with whom we do not have relationship with. So it's really important that we have this clear in our mind. God alone has the power to save. God alone has the power to save. When we look at who God is, Nebuchadnezzar could not imagine that there would be a God who had the power to save. He couldn't imagine that his Marduk, that he would ever, I mean, he would build an idol to Marduk, but he can't imagine that he would ever walk into a furnace yeah, they can bring you wine. They can give you a good harvest. That's what God did in the ancient world. Maybe they healed you on occasion. But to actually walk into a burning furnace and commit suicide, gods don't have anything to do with that. They can't really do that. Why? Because the gods that they worshiped were not real gods. They were idols. They were false gods. And so they didn't have the power to do what they thought they did. So here's what happened. God alone has the power to save. God alone has the power to rescue. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego obeyed God regardless of the results. Now, here's one of the most important verses. I said I was going to come back to it here. One of the most important passages, verses here in this whole passage is this. If we are thrown into this burning, blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make clear to you, your majesty will never serve you. What did they say here? They said... We don't know what God's going to do here. We don't know what the result's going to be. That is real faith. Not what we see on TV. You know why? Because when, people, when some of those people on TV tell you that no matter what you have faith in, God must do it, God will do it, that's not biblical. And by the way, that's not faith. What is that? Let's drive through ordering. You drive through, you place your order up to God, and then he delivers it to you. God, I need three men rescued from the furnace and one extra guy on the side, please. That's what I need. Let's drive through ordering. Faith is not knowing, but still believing. That's what faith is. So Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they had real faith because they knew that God was going to be in control of the situation. If God wanted to rescue him to glorify who? Them? No. 
to glorify himself, he would do it. If God chose to burn them alive there, so be it. They would be faithful to God. Now, for those of us who are like, hmm, should I just bow down before an idol to save my job? Should I bow down to an idol just to make family members happy? Or should I worship the one true God? None of us are being threatened with thrown in a furnace, right? It would be easy to say, well, I don't want to be burned up in a furnace. I'd rather just worship God. I'd, I don't want to be burned up in a furnace. I'd rather just worship a false God. And so regardless of the result, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they did what God asked them to do. Here's the question for us today then. Are we willing to do what God wants us to do, even if the result is not guaranteed in this lifetime? Because that's what it comes down to. God doesn't guarantee you anything in this lifetime. He guarantees you what? His promises are what? That you'll have an abundant life here in this lifetime, but abundance may not mean absence of pain. It may, in fact, it doesn't. It doesn't mean absence of heartache. It doesn't mean absence of problems, but it means that the more we have faith in God, the more God builds and brings our lives to the fruition that he desired it to be. Let me say it another way. The more we trust in God, the more we have faith in him, God places and puts our lives where he designed it to be. And by doing that, we become perfected in him. And the promise is that when we pass from this world, that if we are forgiven and we've trusted in the Messiah, again, people in the Old Testament, they didn't know who the Messiah was going to be. They just put their faith in the Messiah. People today know his name is Jesus. We put our faith in the Messiah that when that happens, we will be what? That we will not perish, but that we will have everlasting life living in God's house when we pass from this world. Those are the promises. There's no promise that if you... Uh, there's no promise that someone's not going to try to make you bow down before an idol because they are. At some point in your life, it's going to happen. Whether it, again, be a real idol of gold or just something that you sell yourself to in this life. But when we do it, when we decide we are not going to bow down, we decide we are not going to give in, we are showing real faith. By the way, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego probably didn't have 50 opportunities like this. The reason why they glorified God is because they had one opportunity and they got it right. Many of us will have that one opportunity and we'll do what? Get it wrong. And we'll miss the point of what God is trying to do in our lives. By the way, faith and obedience are based on God, not the result. This is really important. It's a little bit hard to understand, but let me just try to say it a little. Let me just try to say it as clear as possible. When we have faith and obedience in God, that faith and obedience must come because we are trusting in God and Him alone, not because we're trusting in the result. We clear? Let me say it again. Let me, do, let me give you an example. Sometimes people become Christians when they're older in life, especially this is common, because they want what we call fire insurance. Have you guys heard that before? Fire insurance, right? They, they, they want to just make sure they're not going to go to hell, so they just come to church some because they're doing what? They're putting their faith and obedience in the result. But that's not what God wants. Let me use another example. Let's say I decided that I wanted to marry my wife because I needed to have my physical needs met. So I just said, look, I want to marry you because I need some physical needs met. Is that okay with you? I'm looking to, for, to have faith and obedience with her because of what? The result of what I'm going to get out of it. What would she do? Would she marry me or would she slap me? Hopefully she would slap me. When we say that we're going to have faith and obedience to God because of what we get out of it, it's just as mean and hurtful to God as it would be a person. So 
if we're serious about having faith in God and being obedient to him, we do it because of who he is and who he has demonstrated himself to be, not because of what we get out of it. And you know where the test always comes? I'll tell you what, you put a blazing furnace and whatever you want to use, getting fired from your job, whatever it is, you put that right out there and you'll find out real quickly who are obedient and faithful to God because they love God and who are obedient and faithful to God because it's expedient to be. Because all the expedient people will go and immediately bow down to whatever idol it is and only the people that love God will go to the furnace. So let me just ask you this morning. You might be a lukewarm Christian if you head towards the idol. But seriously, I know this is supposed to be an easy series, but take stock of your life. If someone challenged you to worship an idol, are you going to go to the furnace or are you going to bow down to the idol? What you say in your heart of heart, because I know all of us in church will all say, oh yeah, I'll go to the furnace. Oh yeah, of course. But what you'd say in your heart of hearts defines who you are as a person and your relationship with God. If you're, if you're honest this morning and in your heart you really, would burn, you really would go to the idol rather than losing your job, go to the furnace, then I just want to encourage you to reconnect with God because that level of faith, I don't know if it will rescue you. I don't know if it will save you. When the Bible talks about faith and obedience, it means complete faith and complete obedience in Jesus our Lord and God our Redeemer. And so without that complete faith, it's a real question about what happens to you when you pass from this world. And I know you will never experience abundance in this life. Let's pray.